Infield in, runners all around, nobody out. Three balls and a strike. The pitch to Fraley, and it's well outside. It's a walk-off walk on opening day 2021. Incredible. An amazing comeback for the Mariners, who were down 5-0 going into the seventh. They rallied back, and they win it 8-7, the final score in 10 innings on opening day 2021. Oh, hello, and welcome aboard the Paul Gallant Show on Friday. Friday, got to get down on Friday, April 2nd of 2021. I am Paul Gallant, and this is the most interactive sports talk show in Seattle, in Washington, nay, the world. The Seattle Mariners are 1-0, and they are going 162-0. You heard it here first, people. I'm kidding, of course. That was a really fun way to open up the season. And look, I don't want to overreact too much because many people have told me that the Seattle Mariners are really, really good on opening day. History-wise, it's a bit of a struggle for the Mariners over their all-time here in this city. But they're 29-16 and on opening day, all-time. And last night's victory was one that came thanks to perhaps the baseball gods and perhaps also just the San Francisco Giants yakking all over themselves. But considering the way things started, it's nice to see that the resilience that this team showed at times last year is still here with just a little more pop. The lineup, I thought, was going to take a big step forward this year just given that Mitch Hanniger's back, Kyle Lewis is a little more experienced, Ty France added this offseason, Taylor Trammell just has to be better than some of the other outfielders who were playing around Kyle Lewis. Evan White, you'd think, would be better than he was this past season. All of those things added up to me in my mind with the Mariners having a better lineup. Unfortunately, it was a struggle for the Mariners opening up on opening day. I had never heard of Kevin Gausman. Maybe I should have. He's the opening day starter, after all, for the San Francisco Giants. But he had a perfect game going through the first three innings until Kyle Seager doubled down the left field line. And he got through six and two-thirds innings, only throwing 90 pitches. And there was a time, probably about the seventh or eighth inning, where I started thinking to myself, do I really want to sit through the rest of this? I was starting to, in fact, lose all those positive sunshiny vapors that I had had yesterday leading into opening night. And then the Mariners got really patient. Scott Service summarized the game with one specific moment. And that moment was the first high-pressure situation for one of the newest Seattle Mariners. Um, for me, uh, if, the, if the game could be summarized in, in one at-bat tonight, it was probably Taylor Trammell's at-bat. Uh, he had the nine-pitch walk in the bottom of the eighth against some really tough lefty, laid off some some good sliders, ended up drawing a walk. And it's crazy how does one at-bat, but really pivotal at-bat in the ball game uh, for a guy making his major league debut about as cool uh, as the other side of the pillow, I guess they used to say there. Uh, it, was, it was great to see. And, um, a lot of good at-bats up and down the lineup tonight. Not a ton of hits, but we made them work, that's for sure. That six-run eighth inning does not happen if he's not able to get that walk there. And I just think about Taylor Trammell and what must have been going through his mind. He said before the game that he had all sorts of nerves. 
even though maybe you think that there might not be any. He was, before his first at-bat at least, a little bit zoinked out. I don't blame him. And especially then you find yourself in a situation where you're down 6-2, you've got the bases loaded, but the batter in front of you, Evan White, just struck out. And this is really your first high-stakes situation. And you don't want to try too hard. You need to be patient, but also you don't want to be too patient. You don't want to be passive. You don't want to be essentially a pitcher standing in the batter's box just hoping that you are going to end up walking in a run and that the next batter can take care of things, which, by the way, Dylan Moore did. Instead, Taylor Trammell stood in there, worked a 3-2 count, fouled off a couple of pitches, stayed off all those pitches that Garcia was throwing well to the outside, gets on base, and I think did a phenomenal job of introducing himself to Seattle. It wasn't just the two walks that he drew, both of which I think were on very difficult at-bats, at very challenging at-bats. He also had an outfield assist in this game. Threw it Evan Longoria at second base. He was, I think, fantastic last night, and even though it's a guy coming out of his first game, to hear him speak this way after a game that, again, he said going into it he was nervous was pretty awesome. Like I said earlier, compete. I, I just competed that AB, uh, that AB, and then um, even the last AB, I just wanted to compete as much as possible because the name of the game is, is we got the W, and that's that's that goes down in the record book. We're in a good position right now, so continue to do that every single day because people thought we were out and we weren't. Overreacting to one baseball game is fun. We are all guilty of it on opening day. We're all guilty of it usually after just one football game. And I do want to hear some of your overreactions, whether serious or fun, after the Mariners' 8-7 comeback win last night. It was an exciting game. I am very envious of everyone who got to go to T-Mobile Park and witness that thing firsthand. I think you guys did a great job as far as being there for the moment, standing up for Kyle Seeger when that Garcia guy was trying to decapitate him. I will admit, though, the way that they won it was lucky. I mean, this is not this is not how you want to go about every single game. You don't you don't want to win a game because you got walked eight times and there was a hit batter as well, and you got an error that scores two runs too. But I have zero problem with the Mariners winning on opening day in lucky fashion. It's about time some luck comes our way, huh? The one concern I have: Marco Gonzalez's first night. It's the first start of the season, so you can't make too much out of it, but. For a guy who is so reliant on his location, wasn't quite there. I know that the frustration we all have with inconsistent strike zones, it's going to be a problem in baseball until baseball decides that they are going to add electronic strike zones. Umpires are just very inconsistent with, I think, the zones that they call. But Gonzalez did get hit for three home runs in this game. And three walks on top of that when I think he only had seven walks last season. A little bit disappointing. I do think he'll be able to bounce back, though. Two, three starts like this in a row, that's when I'm going to start to get concerned. So, guys, I'm going to turn this thing over to you on the most interactive sports talk show in Seattle and Washington, nay the world. 710-710, Vizzy Hard Seltzer text line. Excuse me, on the text line. You can tweet me, at Galant says. Let's see what you got here. Overreaction. Mariners are lucky. The Giants are crap because they won't beat a good team. Well, that's just a depressing overreaction. Come on. You got to be better than that. There's one person who believes that I have brought all of the good things from Houston sports to Seattle. Or perhaps some of the dramatic things from Houston sports to Seattle. 
specifically the quarterback situation with uh, with Russell Wilson. But this texture says, thanks to Gallant, bringing the juice from Houston to Seattle, the Mariners will have a better record than the Astros. I'm not sure I'm going to go so far as to say that. I don't know that they're going to be a 500 team. I would probably lean towards not being quite a 500 team. I, I think the over-under that we did for wins, Morris split us in the middle. I think had 79. I said 76, and Danny said 82. I'm not going to go quite that far. I still want to see the young guys, the reinforcements that we think are coming this year, assuming that the minor league season eventually starts, to come up before I can start feeling that way about it. 7-10-7-10. What's the matter? You don't want the Mariners to win how the Seahawks win every single game? I suppose I could get used to it. But, I mean, I think that winning, winning the way that the Angels do in the movie Angels in the Outfield likely has a shelf life unless there was actual supernatural intervention going on here. This is the Paul Gallant Show. You can text in 710-710. Tweet me. At Gallant says, because it is the most interactive sports talk show in Seattle and Washington. Nay, the world. Give me an overreaction to last night's game, and let's have some fun with it on Friday. Friday, got to get down on Friday. Right now, it's time for What's Trending with Maura Dooley. And What's Trending is brought to you by Kings Heating and Air. Shout out to y'all. Maura, what's going on? Hey, this is the right time for this music bed to play. I kind of like that we opened up the show with it, though, because it just felt like a wacky, fun way to open things up after the San Francisco Giants just completely, you know, I, yeah. that is that is a new verb, uh, puke their way out of a six-run lead. Man, I, I still can't believe that they blew it in the fashion that they did. I can't either, but, you know. I'm very happy about the, it. Uh, the Mariners? did some work there too it wasn't exciting because it was walks but hey sometimes you, you got to have that discipline and that patience and yep they hung in there patience it was a fun it was a fun first win so key in life someone should have told that to Santino Corleone <laughs> well uh first up I have some sound here from uh, a gentleman that we know named Rob Staten yes Referred to you and uh, Danny as wankers on the Jake and Stacy show. He called recently. us the W word. Not cool. <laughs> but no, he's awesome. Uh, he was on Joe Fan's Talk of Seahawks podcast, and uh, he thinks that the Seahawks should consider trading Jamal Adams. Furthermore, Adams is going to ask, presumably, for eighteen to twenty million dollars a year. That I would never pay any say eighteen to twenty million dollars a year. It doesn't matter if it's Troy Polamalu, Earl Thomas. Or Jamal Adams. For me, that that kind of money needs to go on elite pass rushers, left tackles, and quarterbacks, and maybe at a pinch, a cornerback as good as as Jalen Ramsey. Not for a, a blitzing box safety. Which, if we're just going to be really honest, that is what Jamal Adams is. You're, you're talking, you know, two players of the quality of Gabe Jackson here. You're talking about three cost-effective players at least because it's two first rounds and a third. If you trade down, you're talking maybe five or six players there. So overall, you know, what is better for the Seahawks, you could say? Three cost-effective players, Rob said there. Here's the problem. Yes, you can get cost-effective players. What if they're not good? We assume that draft picks are going to have a whole lot more value for a team before the pick is made. But what happens when you have L.J. Collier? And nothing against L.J. Collier, but 
Would you rather have three players like LJ Collier, who are contributors in the NFL? They're not busts, but they're not they're not special, at least to this point in their career. Three LJ Colliers or one Jamal Adams. I get this idea too of looking at specific positions and saying, well, this person's not worth 18 to 20 million dollars a year. I don't know what the final figure is going to end up being for Jamal Adams and his new contract. I imagine that the Seahawks will take a look at his ability and what he brings to the pass rush and what he brings to the front seven, but also will highlight some of his issues in coverage. And I do wonder, too, more than anything, I wonder if these negotiations are actually going to get heated. Because there is a part of me that thinks that those people in New York who are still so critical of him, Jamal Adams, those people, they, I feel like, misread why Adams was so frustrated. I don't think it was about money. I think it was Adams thought he was going to be on a contending team, and then all of a sudden the Jets pressed the eject button, and he was like, all right, well, pay me something. Because if you want me to stick through this and a couple of years where we're not even winning, you got to give me a little extra. I, I played at LSU. You know, we I, ha- I have higher standards than you, New York Jets. I think that was a big factor. So I wonder how heated these negotiations are going to get. He's your best defensive player now. He's going to be your best defensive player going forward. If Bobby Wagner, like some of you guys would argue, is worth the kind of salary that he is getting, Jamal Adams is going to be worth that salary in a world with Bobby Wagner or in a post-Bobby Wagner world. Yeah, I I would have to agree with you. I, I think it's crazy to say trade him, and I don't think that's going to happen. I, I agree with you that I think these negotiations aren't going to be easy because he does feel he should be paid as more than just a safety because he look at how many sacks he got last year but I the only area where I agree with Rob a little bit is that I just sometimes wonder even though he's an amazing player if this is the best fit for the Seahawks defense he he lined Mm. up as a deep safety according to pro football focus only 149 times last year and 445 snaps in the box and that just leaves Quandre Diggs on an island quite a bit I feel like they were at their best when they had like two sharks in the water back there where like you didn't want to throw anywhere near them um I I don't know I'm, I'm a little torn on that but I don't see how you trade him at this point you're right in that the way that it used to be with Earl Thomas and with Cam Chancellor was preferable to the current situation I think Chancellor definitely had more of an impact in the actual passing game itself. And I do wonder, when the Seahawks go up against better quarterbacks next season, unlike the quarterbacks that they face down the stretch, if if the way Adams was used is going to allow for the kind of success that Seattle had compared to the first half of the year. Because people say he's not good in coverage, and I don't think it's so much that as just the way that he was being used. I'm I'm with you there. I, I think there are certain situations where he's actually perhaps decent in coverage, and we saw it with him with the Jets. I mean, if you cover him, if you have him on tight ends, he's he's not terrible. I mean, I but the, the question is, if you leave him out on an island and he's not a hundred percent, like you saw in the Rams game, he, he got he got beat twice on on two pretty critical plays. I get that the idea of him not playing deep is is a holdup for a lot of people. But for me, I know how good he is on that front seven level, and I think to myself, that alone is worth it. And Quandre Diggs is good, I think, at patrolling center field. No one's going to be Earl Thomas. That was a once-in-a-decade kind of safety that you had back there. You drafted him in the first round. But Adams, as a former first-round pick, brings something to this defense that I do think it 
at times was lacking last year. That is what's trending, everybody. Brought to you by our friends at Kings Heating and Air. This is the most interactive sports talk show in Seattle, in Washington, nay the world. 710-710 is how you text in. Or you can call in to 206-421-3776 or tweet me at Gallant Says. There's some reaction to things said about Jamal Adams. And also, I want to hear your best opening day overreactions to the Seattle Mariners. It's time for you to be heard. Your voice, your opinions. It's time to be heard. Every day at 1015 with Paul Gallant. Be heard. 710-710. Why is Paul Gallant's microphone always 10 times louder than everyone else's? That is not the microphone's fault. Old 619. No. That is sadly my fault. I try to stay at the same level over and over again, but sometimes I just get too excited, especially after the Mariners win their opening night game and are going to be 162-0. Come on, how can you blame me? Some texts. Play Jamal Adams effectively at the third linebacker position. Put Marquise Blair in as a third safety behind him. I, I think we're looking at it wrong here. You put Jamal Adams in a variety of different positions that are closer to the line of scrimmage, and you see what he's able to do for you. Because that's where he's going to be most effective making plays. And then you hope that the guys that are on the back level playing in that cover three that the Seahawks traditionally play in are going to be able to hold their own. The cornerback positions are the ones that I'm curious about. But what's wrong with having a guy who is, I think, as close to Troy Polamalu as you are going to get on the front level of that defense? And we've heard the comparisons that Pete Carroll, who of course coached Troy Polamalu, has made to Polamalu and Adams. So I feel like you got to look at it from that perspective. Where is he going to be able to make the most plays? It's essentially if you say, all right, you can do whatever you want. We trust you. We trust your judgment. You blitz or you're going to fly around and, and, and find the ball and track people down with that unbelievable turning radius that he has and his ability to get guys from the other side of the field off the edge. Come on, man. This is, this is a guy that I feel like you just trust the Seahawks to use him the way that they've been using him because I think it's been working out pretty well thus far. 206 421 Three seven seven six. Let's go to Lou in Seattle. Lou, what's going on, man? How's it going, Paul? Enjoy the show. Appreciate it. Hey, uh, Pete Carroll says it all the time. It's all about the ball. I mean, give me a ball hawking safety that's going to get interceptions and get me that ball instead of uh, a safety that's going to uh, make me vulnerable on the backside by uh, putting them in the box and trying to get sacked. But I want I want my sacks to come from a defensive lineman. Uh, four down linemen, that's how you get ahead, not by bringing five or six. And that's what you have to do with Adams. I don't think it's a good fit, Paul. I mean, I like the player. He's a great player. You can't let him go. But at the same time, I like Neil much better in that defense. Ryan, Neil, all right, that's that's a step too far. That's a step too far, Lou. Here, here, here's my question. Optimally, why does a ball hawk have to be someone who's only getting interceptions? Can a ball hawk be someone who's flying to the football consistently, whether it's going after the quarterback or going after running backs that are sweeping the edge or wide receivers on speed sweeps? I don't think that we need to marry ourselves to one definition of that idea, that concept of a player. And I also think, too, it's almost as if we are forgetting what Quandre Diggs is on the back end. I don't think that Jamal Adams is that much of a liability on the back end because they, they really didn't put him back there a if whole he's lot. In the box, if he's in the box, he is a liability because he's not back there with Diggs. That was the problem with the defense last year. They threw it over the top. Jamal Adams is in the box. Uh, 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 interception is a turnover. Uh, a sack is a negative play. That's the difference. I want interceptions. Like, get a Minka Fitzgerald. 
Fitzpatrick. He's made, he's way better than Jamal Adams, in my opinion. Why? Because he gets interceptions. Don't sacks lead to interceptions, though? I mean, doesn't a great pass rush create uh, problems for a quarterback? I mean, leads to interceptions, but it's not an interception. But interceptions, here's, here's the thing, Lou. Interceptions are not, are not so easy to come across, you know, especially in today's NFL. You can't just force them to happen because you necessarily have a guy back there. But the league spoke. Minka Fitzpatrick is first-team All-Pro. Why? He had eight interceptions, if not more. Whereas uh, Jamal Adams had nine, broke a record, had nine sacks. He broke a record for safety, and he was not first-team All-Pro, far as I know. But And Minka Fitzpatrick is uh, known as a better safety. I'm just using him as a comparison. That's the difference between turning the ball over and sacks. I think you're looking at the position too traditionally, Lou. And I appreciate the phone call. Good passion. Please call in again. This is good stuff. I don't think that we should consider the safety position to be this one specific version of the position. I really don't. Look, Lou is right in that you win when you have a four-man pass rush. Look at what the Bucks did in the Super Bowl. And the Seahawks need to get more out of that area. But luckily, they brought back Carlos Dunlap. And for those who don't know... I saw this from Brady Henderson um, this morning. I think his cap hit is going to be like $2.9 million this season. Good job, John Schneider. Holy smokes. Freeing up cap space left and right and right and left. Adams is someone who is really effective in going north and south, flying to the, the line of scrimmage, flying through the line of scrimmage. He has incredible closing speed on the ball. And... Yeah, you maybe want more interceptions out of him, but was not Jamal Adams their most impactful defensive player last year? And and I, I'd like you guys to point at the real spots where Adams was a liability for the team. You guys are asking him to do something that is not his 100% strength. And here's the thing that you do in the NFL. you When you find out things about a player, you put him in positions for him to succeed. Because every player has strengths, every player has weaknesses. We saw Adams exposed when he was covering Julian Edelman in that game against New England when Edelman ended up um, carving him up. That took place, though, after Quandre Diggs got ejected for the hit that he had, I think, on Nikhil Harry. Then fast forward to the game against the Rams where he's playing with a torn labrum. He was in the right spot a couple of times. Couldn't raise his shoulder. I do wonder what a fully healthy Jamal Adams would have done on that pass towards the left sideline that he stepped underneath. It looked like he could not raise his right shoulder there. And then on that play that was deep down the field to Cooper Cup. He had some bad moments in that game. It was not his best. But I don't think that we should look at the safety position through what used to work here. Look at what you have. And I think this is a guy who is your best defensive player. What would you be without him? Yes, he's not a center fielder. He's not an Earl Thomas. He's not a Minka Fitzpatrick, as Lou laid out. But he's a Jamal Adams. And I really like what Jamal Adams brings to the table. Nine and a half sacks as a safety, as a blitzer, that's going to open things up for other guys. And you know what? They had to blitz him as much as they did this past season because they had no help at pass rusher until they got Carlos Dunlap. And then everything started to open itself up. And my hope is that because Dunlap's still back here and that with Adams as a threat to either blitz or hover around in that area, 
that you have a guy that's really able to freelance a little bit more. And honestly, I trust Jamal Adams' instincts, and instincts are a huge thing to have as a safety. Earl Thomas had them in a totally different way. Cam Chancellor had them in, I would say, a closer way. Troy Polamalu is the guy that you want to look at and, and look at Jamal Adams with that kind of context. And to have a guy like that, I would take that guy 100% of the time for north of $16 million a year for a couple of first-round picks like the Seahawks gave up for him. It's not great to have no first-round picks the next two years, but where would you be without him right now? I'm Paul Gallant. It's the Paul Gallant Show. Coming up next, let's take a look back at opening night, opening day technically for the Seattle Mariners with the one and only Brandon Gustafson of 710sports.com. Son of a Gustafson. Next, right here. It's 1030, and that means it's time to get in the sports pit. In the pit where all that stuff goes down, man, if you don't have some freaking toughness, you're going to get your, you're going you're to fail. Well, all go on. The road to 162-0 began last night, and joining me right now in the sports pit on the Issaquah Pest Control Hotline, the one and only from 710sports.com, Brandon Gustafson. Brandon, were you out at the game last night? I am very envious of you if you were. I saw some pictures that seemed to indicate that you were at T-Mobile Park. Yeah, Paul, I was up in the press box, and uh, I for, for those who don't know, I started at 7-10 in November of 2019, and I didn't get to go to any games last year. So last night was the first game I got to cover in an official capacity, and uh, it was definitely an eventful one, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I still haven't been able to do that, so... Uh... Just rub it in. Just rub it in. Why don't you, Brandon? Uh, and uh, Jake Heaps asked a very critical question. Who was the woo person? Did you end up finding the woo person? Any luck there? No, that's what's funny. I, I actually just tweeted back to Jake. I, I did not hear this woo person. I saw all these people tweeting about it. I didn't hear her. I, I don't think I heard her once. There was one heckler behind home plate uh, who was very loud, and I heard him throughout the entirety of the game. But – this woo lady, she must have been right next to the to the TV mic or something because I, I didn't hear a peep from her. So that's pretty funny. Yeah, I didn't hear her either, but I think it's because I'm deaf and probably just didn't hear it over the course of the broadcast. My hearing is gone because <laughs> I talk so loudly. Brandon, before we dive into the good, you have, it, you have experience pitching, and I'm curious as to what you thought about Marco Gonzalez's opening day performance where – his location was a bit off, and on top of that, some Giants turned the ball around on him and crushed her. Three, three home runs he gave up yesterday, in addition to three walks after a season where somehow he only allowed seven walks. Yeah, it seemed like his timing was off, and for a guy like Marco, who his whole game is command, he's going to be in the high 80s at his best with his, uh, with his fastball. When, when he doesn't have his command and he's not hitting his spots, he's going to get hit hard, and that's exactly what happened um both marco and scott service thought that the giants had a good game plan had a good plan of attack with him and and it showed i think they hit four solo home runs total uh three of those were off of marco and uh they were just they were relentless against him or especially early on and like you said with the walks that's so uncharacteristic of him granted one of those three was uh, an intentional pass after he fell behind uh, to evan longoria 2-0 but still Seeing him walk the first batter of the season, that was pretty strange. He had far more 3-0 counts and 3-2 counts than we're accustomed to seeing. But it sounds like he thinks it's pretty mechanical. I'd like to go back and kind of take a closer look at some of the footage to see what I can find. But I, I could definitely chalk that up to uh, 
to some timing issues, but it could also be a little bit of nerves. I mean, this is the first time the guys pitched in front of fans since September of 2019, and even though there were only about 8,100 people there, it was pretty loud. It was a it was a really good environment last night. Loud in the right moments as well, booing when Garcia almost decapitated Kyle Seeger a couple of times. That's something that I have missed because those fake crowd noises that you were hearing on the TV broadcast, yeah, just doesn't do it proper justice in the midst of a game. On the other mound, Brandon, Brandon Gustafson with me on the Issaquah Pest Control Hotline talking about the Seattle Mariners and their season opening win. You had Kevin Gausman who cruised through the first three innings where he had a perfect game until Kyle Seeger had a double and then continued to pitch, I think, quite effectively. What was the difference between the Mariners and that lineup going up against Gausman where it felt like they were just struggling to string together at bats that took anything out of Gausman to what you saw out of that Giants bullpen, which really just puked the game away? Yeah, Gausman was on his game, man, and he was really, really locating his fastball, and when he needed to, he could ramp it up. He's typically in the low 90s. He was sitting about 92, 93, but when he was going elevated with it, they had a hard time catching up. He touched 95, maybe even 96 a few times, according to the stadium gun, but he's got the good fastball. He mixes in a really nice slider, and he has a good splitter as well. He was just on it. He was around the zone, and when you're around the zone consistently with good stuff, even the best hitters are going to have a hard time. Those Giants relievers, though, man, they uh, <laughs> they struggled to find the zone, and the Mariners made them work. I mean, they the Seattle uh, racked up nine walks. Jake Fraley got hit by a batter. Jake Fraley reached base four times, and he didn't get a single hit. The dude <laughs> walked three times and got hit once. It, it's just great. But I think that the most impressive thing with it was – the Mariners made it very clear that the Giants relievers were struggling, in, and especially in that eighth inning. And Taylor Trammell's that bad man in that eighth inning. He works an eight-pitch walk. That 2-2 slider that he took to get to ball three, that's not a pitch that most guys making their MLB debut are going to lay off of, especially when you're a left-handed batter off of a lefty reliever like Garcia is. That was just so impressive, and that was the at-bat of the game uh, in my eyes, and that's what Scott Service said too, and that led to Dylan Moore's RBI double. Jose Marmalejos hit the ground ball that most people thought was going to be an inning-ending double play, and Brandon Belt threw it, into, threw it into the outfield, and sure enough, that led to the walk-off win in the 10th. Brandon, you follow this minor league system for the Mariners, I think, better than just about anyone, and with Trammell finally coming up to the majors, I know that this is a guy, at least splits-wise, who has been pretty good against left-handed pitching. That at-bat was something else. Because I'm just thinking about what's going through his head. He talked about how he had nerves going into the game. And you got a out right in front of you, Evan White with the bases loaded. He strikes out. There's one out. You're thinking to yourself, oh, man, the bases are loaded. I got to do something here. But at the same time, you don't want to screw up. And in that situation, he was able to maintain patience and even get a little bit mad at himself because he just missed on a fastball is is this going to be the expectation for Taylor Trammell a guy who is just exceptionally good when it comes to seeing the strike zone well he's uh he's certainly off to a good start in that regard man because like I said that at bat was just as about as professional as it can be for a young guy and even after the game he he told the media that he was up there wanting to do damage. I mean, a young guy, he hasn't gotten a, an MLB hit yet. It's his first game. Of course, he'd like to go and play hero out there and drive something into the outfield and score a few runs. But he And he was trying to do some damage up there. And then he got to two strikes. He started to shorten it up. 
He was fighting off some good pitches. He fouled off a few. His timing was really, really good, but it was just really impressive how he was seeing the baseball off of a left-handed reliever like that uh, in just such a critical, critical moment. The fans are buzzing. The bases are juiced, you know. I, I'm I'm really, really impressed by what he did. He's been doing it all spring. He's been putting together great at-bats seemingly all year long so far. So I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do going forward. Uh, certainly a great start, even though he didn't get any hits or anything like that, but works two walks and really good at-bats, and then he had the outfield assist in center field where he threw out the guy at second. The one and only Brandon Gustafson at the B G U S T A F S O N on Twitter. This guy is one of the hardest working guys we have at our station and does a fantastic job covering the Mariners. Brandon, thanks so much, man, and enjoy your weekend. Hey, thanks, Paul. Talk to you later. Again, at the B Gustafson on Twitter. Great stuff from Brandon, as always. This conversation took on a light I did not think it would. We'll have some final thoughts on the Mariners' season opening win, but we'll also to continue to talk about the value of Jamal Adams. A lot of differing opinion here. 710-710 is the text line. You can also call in 206-421-3776. You're listening to Paul Gallant. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. Every day at 10 on 710 ESPN Seattle. The most interactive sports talk show in Seattle and Washington, nay, the world. A great question from a texter, 710-710. How does an early morning sports radio host watch late-night baseball games? Well, you have poor sleeping habits and just do it. That's, that's basically how it goes. Lots of naps. Lots of naps, more, Or maybe you just go straight through the entirety of a day and don't take a nap in the middle because you're Ugh. not a smart person, and then you end up sleeping four hours a night every single night of the week and yet somehow still have the energy to be as loud as you are every single day. I don't know how it works. I just know that that is my general process. It's a little bit more difficult as well when over seven innings the team that you cover hasn't scored, I don't know, a run. It took the Mariners offense their sweet time to get going last night, and it was largely aided by the San Francisco Giants. If it was not opening day, I do think I might have tuned out. So I'm glad that I didn't because with the way things started, with Marco Gonzalez having the shaky start in the lineup outside of Kyle Seeger, I mean, really, ooh, at first, I think there's good reason to change the channel. If you're in attendance, though, congratulations to you. Again, I'm jealous. Arthur, shaking fist emoji. I am very envious of your experience last night, but it must have been a whole lot of fun, and what a way to welcome sports, live sports back to Seattle. All right, what else do we have here? Oh, well, look, this has turned into quite the conversation and probably something that we're going to need to do also in the 7 to 10 hours with Danny next week. There is a debate over the value of one Jamal Adams, and I'm surprised by it. We heard Rob Statton, who covers the Seahawks. Specifically, I think he looks more at what they do in the draft. I think he does a very good job. He is of the opinion that it's not great value to re-sign Jamal Adams for a contract that could be north of $15 million a year annually. And that if that's what he is looking for, that Seattle needs to think about perhaps 
trading him and getting some draft picks back. First off, good luck. I don't think you're going to get the draft picks back that you want. Second off, I'm not convinced that the negotiations are going to be as difficult as we might expect. I think people are clouded by the way that things ended for Adams in New York. You have the New York media acting as if the New York Jets can do no wrong, which is hilarious to me. I think that he looked at that situation, he saw what he thought was going to be a team trying to contend to turn into a rebuild and said, pay me if you're going to be rebuilding, if you want me to be patient and stick around here. That's at least my hope. Some texts, 710-710. We had a caller, Lou, earlier who called in 206-421-3776, who I thought brought a great take to the table. He made the comparison to Minka Fitzpatrick. But they do play different positions, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. Quandre Diggs is your free safety. Quandre Diggs is the guy that's playing center field and flying all over the field. Something I think he did great in 2019. Not so much this past year, but I still think he's a plus player that you want to have here for the next couple of seasons. Another texter says everyone wants an Ed Reed. Yeah, you're right. There are very few Ed Reeds out there. So when you find a safety that is really good at certain things, but maybe not in the traditional safety role, it's good to have that on your defense. And it's worth paying a little bit extra for it. Jamal Adams for yards one through seven with an offense facing it. That guy is all over the field. A ball hawk in a totally different sense. Whether he is blitzing, getting after the quarterback, or just chasing dudes down off the edge. He is a positionless player. It's like a combination of nickelback and linebacker and safety. And... These people that are asking for him to consistently be in coverage, you're almost acting like he is just so bad in coverage, too, that he can't do it. He is capable, but you don't want to have him doing that the majority of the time. You want to be able to have him out there, and he's essentially just a wild card where a quarterback doesn't know what he is going to do. Having that kind of an unpredictable player, especially when you're going up against rather inexperienced quarterbacks, it's a great, I think, advantage to have defensively. We have a texter named Steve who sent in a text and has been a tad condescending for my tastes. Using a safety as a pass rusher to make up for a mediocre defensive line is not the answer. That's a fair point. Is that Seahawks defensive line, though, mediocre now that Carlos Dunlap is aboard? I don't think that they're great by any means. I also don't think that they are mediocre. Not above average range. Mediocre average is the same word. Mediocre just sounds worse. It is the reason we got beat over the top all last year. Pause for a second. That's not an accurate characterization of the way that the Seahawks defense played last season. The beginning of the year, yes, they got torched over the top. As the season went along, did you see that really at all? Second half of the season? The last time I can remember it, I think there was a deep play in the Buffalo game, which just was a disaster of a game. And I'm hoping that that is not what's going to take place in Seattle or with them going up against anybody next year. There's this one play everyone's highlighting where Stephon Diggs is being covered, essentially looking like man-on-man coverage against Jamal Adams. It was a bad moment, but you shouldn't have Jamal Adams in man-on-man coverage on a, on a wide receiver or in a spot where there's essentially 27 yards to either side of the field for Stephon Diggs to move. And Jamal Adams is just stuck there on an island, essentially. That's not a spot that you want to put him in. You need more play out of your corners. You need better play out of your corners. And to look at Jamal Adams and like 
point at him as possibly a reason for some of their struggles on the, on the back end. I, I just don't think that's an accurate characterization of the way that the defense went. And you want this other safety. Well, what is that other safety going to do? Is he also going to play Quandre Diggs' position? Because you already have that guy. At least you think you do. You hope you do. Unless you maybe have some questions about Quandre Diggs. The texture continues, Adams is awesome. He's not saying he's a bad player, so I'm, I'm with you there, Steve. But he is not what we need to spend $16 million on now. I would just ask, what, where are you going to spend that $16 million then? You know, what, what could you have done differently this offseason to give the Seahawks defense a better chance to win? Shaquille Barrett didn't hit the open market. So, pass rusher-wise, who, who were you bringing in? Really, it was a pretty unconvincing class. Still is a rather unconvincing class. I would also say, too, uh, if, if you're looking at this money that you have to spend— don't spend it just for the sake of spending it. There are way too many other weak spots to be spending $16 million on the safety position. The texture continues. Bobby is valuable beyond his stats. He is the brains. He is not the brawn that he once was, guys. Not to say he's a bad player. He's just, he is not the impactful player that he once was. And Adams has a leg up on him on that front. Ken Norton is not the brains, but Bobby is. Okay. You have no historical perspective season ticket holder since 2005, fans since 1976. Okay. Congratulations on that front, Steve. But I grew up watching the greatest team ever play football. So I do have a little historical context on that side. And I realize the importance of a safety that doesn't play the traditional safety spot. Like, I don't know, Rodney Harrison, who is a borderline Hall of Famer. Oh, he's a cheap player, Paul. Well, that's the kind of player that a coach found a way to maximize his talents and use them in a way that specifically suited his skill set. And that's what the Seahawks should be doing with Jamal Adams. And I think he's worth that money. I'm Paul Gallant. This was the Paul Gallant Show. Big thanks to everybody who tuned in, to Brandon Gustafson, who joined me in the sports pit, to Maura Dooley behind the glass every single day, to our caller, Lou, and to the text line as well, 710-710. And Stacey Ross is waving frantically at me. The Jake and Stacey Show is next. More Mariners talk? Oh, yeah, 1-0, 162-0. It's going to happen. Don't go anywhere right here, 710 ESPN Seattle.